Well, good morning. It's good to see you all in this uh, second service. If you have your Bibles with you, I hope you do. I would invite you to open them to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 56. Um, Just a reminder to everybody, we're going to be having a men's Bible study this coming Saturday on the 15th. And that will begin at 9 o'clock in the morning. So a men's Bible study together here at Christ Community Church, 9 o'clock in the morning. Now this passage, 57 through 50, uh, 47 through 56, is the betrayal and arrest of the Lord Jesus. Judas leads a mob to arrest him. His disciples desert him and he is taken as their willing prisoner. This whole ordeal, in in a way, it's a mockery of the Passover. During the the Passover, the final meal of the festival, one of the requirements, if you were participating in it, one of the requirements was to be ready at a moment's notice to depart out of Egypt. So they'd eat, they were commanded, eat it with your clothes on, eat it standing on your feet with your sandals on, your belts tight, your packs your bags packed, staff in your hand, ready to go. There was a sense of urgency uh, to the meal, a sense of foreboding about what was going to happen. Here on this night, in the last Passover, there is the same sense of urgency, but it's twisted. The leaders of God's people are ready to move out at a moment's notice, but not to be delivered from slavery, but to deliver the Savior to be bound. And it's as as though with a moment's notice they... They alert the priests and they ready the temple guard. They're ready within a moment's notice to gather clubs and torches and swords and and other crude weapons. Ready to rouse the Levites from their beds and convene the Sanhedrin. Because they're ready at a moment's notice. At one word from Judas to go and capture the Lamb of God. The firstborn Son And his people here have become the agent of death that will set God's true people free. It's a mockery. Torches and lanterns to search for the light of the world. Swords and clubs and men of war to subdue the Prince of Peace. Priests in the divine name ordering the Lord's execution. And at the time when God's people should be celebrating and remembering being delivered from bondage in Egypt... They are coming together to bind the one who came to set them free. That's that's what is happening here in this passage. Matthew 26, 47 through 56. Let's read. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were there with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. 
Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that, I mu- that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word this morning. I pray that you would help me to preach, that you would glorify your Son through his word. Lord, I pray for hearts that are wandering, that you would draw them back. For hearts that are cold, that you would ignite a fire in them for you. For those that have gone astray, that you would bring them back in and focus them on the things that matter eternally. And help us, Lord, with one accord to honor you as our King and the worthy Savior. Lord, make Yourself known among us this morning by the power of Your Spirit. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray and look to You. Amen. Last time in Matthew, we saw our Lord at His absolute lowest. Agony was consuming Him. Fear was tightening its grip around Him. In His consternation, He was sweating great drops of blood. It's not how you expected to see Him. The, the strain and the tension were building in Him as he, as he held the cup in His hands. He wrestled in prayer for the courage to drink it down. It was, it was a trial of a severity and an intensity that we don't even have the ability to imagine. It is enough for one unrepentant sinner to go to hell for all of eternity. No one can endure this. Well, how much more to drink down the hell of countless millions and to do it within a day. In that cup foamed the intensity of a thousand lakes of fire, all of the sin of His people, all of their consequences, millions of eternities of suffering are about to be compacted into Jesus. It's what's about to happen. That's what's in the cup He is about to drink down. No wonder He is so troubled. But then when He rises from His prayer, and you see Him agonizing in prayer over the garden... When he stands up and goes back to his disciples, the battle is over. The agony has been subdued. The the grip of fear has burst open. And he is determined now with an unbreakable resolve to drink down the cup to the very last drop for the sins and the salvation of his people. And now, here we begin to see him take the first sip as he is betrayed into the hands of his enemies. While Jesus is still speaking, Judas comes leading a mob. But when the Lord faces this mob now, Judas now, he's not the same as he was moments ago. Now, he is calm and courageous and composed. 
in the face of what for anyone would be everything falling apart. Imagine your friends have abandoned you. One of your own is betraying you. A court has been convened to condemn you. A mob has been assembled to torture you. And worst of all, his Father in heaven is about to forsake him and curse him and destroy him. He stands firm and yield an inch. It's no wonder Paul writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because what has Paul endured that Christ had not suffered a thousand times worse? This is an encouraging passage. Because I, I look at this and, and I, see, I see Jesus here in this passage enduring this and the way He faces it. And I think of me and all of the trials that, that I'd face in my life. And you can think of all the trials you face in your life. And the greatest of them, you know what it becomes? It becomes a speck of dust in the eye. It becomes nothing. How do your trials, even your worst trials in this life, and I don't mean to diminish them, but compared to Christ enduring a thousand eternities in hell in a fraction of a day, your greatest trials don't compare. You say, how is this encouraging? Because if Jesus is able to face these trials with His head held high and His chest out, being able to face them with strength, and that strength is available to you through Him, then what trial in this world could ever overwhelm you? I mean, if a man can lift a thousand pounds, he can lift ten. And if Christ can endure the greatest of trials, He can certainly provide strength for when your trials come. And they will come. But if He is your strength, you may face them calmly and with confidence. But only to the degree that you are walking with Him. He abides in you through His Word. He strengthens you through His Word and through your prayers. And the more you know Him, the more you will know of His power to endure. The more of it will be available. This is why Paul, when he's at the end of his life, you remember what he says? It's in Second Timothy. He's about to be executed for the faith. He doesn't say, I know what I believe, though that's certainly part of it, but that's not where he puts his confidence. He says, I know in whom I have believed. His courage comes not from knowing a doctrine about a person. It comes from knowing Christ. This morning, we are going to seek together to know Him more. And we're going to do that by taking four points in this passage and seeing how they relate to Christ. The first point has to do with Judas. He's leading the mob to Jesus. He's going to betray Him. But why? In his book, Who Moved the Stone? Frank Morrison, he asked the question, why Judas? Why did they need Judas? How come the high priest thought it was necessary to employ him in their treacherous schemes? What could he offer that their power and authority didn't already provide? He speculates, was it the fear of the crowd and a desire to find a secluded place to arrest him? It absolutely was. We're told this in Scripture. Did, did it have to do with the difficulty of finding and identifying a person in this age long before photography? You have to understand, when you think of the celebrity, you know what they look like. A picture comes in your mind. You didn't have that in Jesus' day. They might have taken one of the disciples by mistake if they didn't know who he was. 
Certainly that factors into why they want Judas to come along. But you have to think, Jesus' whereabouts and his identity by this point were well known. This is the last week of his life. What's he doing every day? He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, triumphant to the cheers of the crowd. When he first arrived, there was a a feast held in his honor by Simon the leper. Even though up until this point he had been hiding away and going off in secret many times, this last week he takes no such precautions. He is, uh, becomes public in Jerusalem. And so they could have, caught have, could have caught him early on the roadside on his way in. He's coming in from the same place. They, uh, they, they had very little trouble finding him earlier when they sought him out. Now in the final week, he's not hiding anymore. They could easily have sent a spy if they wanted to watch him discover his evening lodging and apprehend him then. So I don't think it was merely for fear of the crowd that they hired Judas. There was another reason for his employment. Morrison goes on to say, he says, Certainly the leaders did everything with a furtive glance over their shoulder towards a crowd. They were afraid of them. But fear of the people doesn't explain the the strangest things of this affair. For one, they meet at the most inconvenient time for political business, the middle of the night on the eve of a holiday. And second, they send an imposing and even ridiculous display of force to arrest an undefended man in a lonely garden at midnight. They seem to take strange precautions in dealing with him. And the only thing that that this can signify is that underneath all of the fear of the people, underneath the fear of the crowd, they were afraid of the man Jesus Christ himself. This explains their excessive behavior, and it is excessive. And it may explain why Judas... It's likely not only did he provide information about the whereabouts of Jesus, but also the disposition of Christ. What do I mean? Well, Jesus has been talking so far about his time having come, hasn't he? He's been talking of being ready to die, ready to lay down his life, talking about how in, in such and such a time he will be lifted up. He will be handed over. He will be crucified. And I imagine when Judas went to the Sanhedrin, he offered more than just to lead them to the Lord. He told them of his master's own prophetic words. Jesus is weary now and ready to surrender. He has said so himself. He is at the end. I doubt he'll even resist if we go to take him. He's spoken, he's spoken of dying on this very day. So come, if you, if you want to kill him, now is the time. I will even lead you to where he goes at night. And if this seems strange, consider the facts. In the past, when the Lord was confronted, how effortlessly he evaded his enemies. In John 7.46, men are sent to arrest him. They come back not only empty-handed, but when they come back, they say, never has a man spoke like this, and they marvel. Elsewhere in John, they pick up stones to stone the Lord, and he escapes the crowd. We're not told how, but he's hidden from them. On another occasion, they seek to arrest him in John 10, and we're not told how he uh, escapes, but we're told they couldn't do it. Add to this that the man Jesus had been performing miracles all over the country. He has healed the blind, given them back their sight. He's healed the lame. He has healed all manner of diseases and uncleanness. He's he's performed miracles everywhere, cast out demons. He's cursed a tree and it fell dead. He's spoke bread and fish into existence. 
on the storm and the raging sea, he said, quiet and be still. And the rain stopped and the wind stopped and the waves stopped. Crowds followed him everywhere because of his undeniable supernatural power. And if he could use it to heal, then couldn't he use it to defend himself? No doubt they remember the story of the prophet Elijah, who, when the king sent men to arrest, a captain of 50 and his 50 men, they came and they said, Are you the prophet? Come. They went to arrest him and fire came down from heaven and burned them all up. Didn't happen once, but twice. This is the kind of man they're coming to arrest. What if he responds like that? The one thing we shouldn't overlook is that the Sanhedrin and the crowd, especially, is terrified to arrest Jesus. In fact, John's Gospel confirms this. When it says, they come, they come to arrest Him, they ask, are you the one we're looking for? He answers, I am He. And when He says it, what happens? The whole crowd trembles and steps back and falls over themselves to get away as if fire is going to come out from His mouth and devour them. They're terrified. And so Judah steps forward and encourages the mob to, to come and overcome their fear and arrest Christ. But you see, even in His capture, His power is not diminished, but is on full display. It's as if He has to hand out His hands and coax them and say, I'm the one you're looking for. Come and take Me. They're afraid. He goes willingly. Jesus approaches, Rabbi, is that you? And he kissed him. In the ancient world, it's a greeting of warm affection. On Judas's part, it is a lie, a, a facade of friendship. But how does the Lord address Judas? It's the second point I'd like you to see. Because of all of the things that he could have said, there's a lot of things he could have said. If you knew someone was coming to betray you, there's a lot of things... You might, a lot of words you might use to address them. Right? Viper, or you snake, or you traitor, or you betrayer. Or you might say nothing at all. Jesus doesn't do any of those things. He looks him in the eye and addresses Judas as friend. Friend, do what you have come to do. Why does he address him this way? Well, for the same reason he singled him out at Passover, even though Judas was the only one who knew he was being singled out, it was to warn him. It was to make him stop and, and, and ask and take pause. Do I really want to betray my friend? Do I really want to betray this one who has done nothing but good to me for the last three years? Do I really want to go through with this or should I stop and repent right here, right now and ask for mercy? Jesus shows him just how treacherous his, his actions are. He, he doesn't call him his enemy or his betrayer or a snake. I mean, any of that, it might have steeled Judas' resolve. Oh, you want to call me a traitor? Okay, then I'll be, betray. Friend, what could Jesus have said that would more thoroughly wound the conscience of Judas? It shows us the benevolence of Christ towards his enemies. He does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in dispensing justice upon Judas. If Judas will be lost, it will not be without the offer of grace, 
even though the Lord knows Judas will not respond. In John 6, it says, He knows Judas will betray Him. He says, He's singled, Have I, have I not chosen the twelve of you, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus knows Judas will not relent, and yet He warns him anyway. He wants Judas to heed the warning and turn. In fact, it could be said that every warning or pronouncement of divine wrath in the Bible is an avenue of escape to the one who receives it, if it's received with repentance and faith. Every warning in the Bible has in it a lifeline of grace. Consider Cain. God knew Cain would kill Abel. And what does He say to Cain? He warns him. Sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God knew the outcome. God knew that Cain would kill Abel. Certainly God knew it. But He warns him nonetheless. In Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy, God is pleading with the people through Moses. He goes through, He lists all of the blessings of following the Lord that lead to life, blessings that lead to life, and all of the curses that breaking the covenant will lead to, and, and death. So he goes through all of this. This is how you have life. This is the path that leads to life. This is the path that leads to death. Choose life, he pleads with the Israelite people. And then a few chapters later, now it's, it's not Moses on behalf of God to the Israelites. It's just Moses and God now. You're, you've come into the inner chamber and, and God tells Moses, Moses, they're not going to choose life. They're going to abandon me. In just a few generations, they're going to forsake me. God knows what they're going to do. God knows they're not going to choose life, and yet He warns them and even pleads with them through His prophet that they would choose the path that leads to life. Or Nineveh, that wicked and immoral city. They were spared when they repented. But you remember the message they received from Jonah? It was not, God loves you, repent. There was no hope in the message to Nineveh. There was no gospel to Nineveh. It was, it, in fact, it wasn't even a warning so much as it was a settled judgment. Forty days, and this whole city is going to be scrubbed from the earth like the off-scourings on a pot. And yet, at the preaching of Jonah, the whole city cried out in repentance from the king down to the, down to the commoner, even animals as much as animals could repent with the help of their masters. They were putting sackcloth on their donkeys. And the city, as if one man humbled themselves before the Lord, and the warning, in fact, the sentencing, became itself the means of their salvation. Jonah's message of destruction brought the city to salvation. And if you remember the story, Jonah didn't like it. Jonah knew God. In fact, the very reason Jonah says he ran away, sometimes you think you read it and you think... It, it, it. Jonah ran away probably because he didn't want to uh, see what the Ninevites would do to him. That's not why he ran away. Jonah says why he ran away. He says, God, I know that you're compassionate. And I know that you're kind. And I know that you're merciful. And if I go to these Ninevites and, and tell them this, if they repent, you're going to forgive them. They're the enemies of Israel. I don't want them forgiven. I want them destroyed. And Jonah is angry because God is merciful. Well, if Jonah knew God enough to know how merciful he would be if that city humbled itself, how much more Judas... 
He'd seen the compassion and the mercy of God in a way that no other human being had ever seen, displayed in the person of Christ. He saw it firsthand. He saw it repeatedly. He saw Him forgive. And wouldn't that word friend bring a twisting to His heart? Wouldn't it bring a a stab of guilt and shame? And wouldn't that guilt remind him of how often he'd seen the guilty forgiven? Couldn't what happened to Nineveh happen to him? If he heeded the warning, it would never happen. Judas was singled out from the beginning to be a traitor. He was chosen to be one of the twelve for the very purpose of betraying Christ. He was a son of perdition. Nevertheless, the warnings, which are themselves a branch of blessed peace, were extended to him in this final hour of betrayal. And forever, the last greetings spoken to Judas from the lips of the Lord were friend. The Lord is ready to save his enemies. And this address tells us more about Jesus than it does about Judas. No one is ever condemned with delight. No one is ever sent away to the glee of the Father. He is ready to save his enemies. Thirdly, in his dying, he shows the spiritual nature of his kingdom. Though things in this life are important, it's not where our energies should be focused. This is really what the whole episode with Peter demonstrates. Peter is, he draws out a sword, he's trying to split the head of the high priest's servant in half, and he misses and he chops off the ear. Well, Luke tells us that Jesus heals the ear, but in every account, the Lord rebukes him. And it shows us that Peter, even now, he really doesn't understand what's happening. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, put your sword away. I don't need you to do this. Don't you understand? Don't you realize that I could summon 12 legions of angels to come to my defense? With one word, all of the fury of the heavenly hosts and the armies of heaven would rain down on Jerusalem. They would level Rome. They would turn Pilate and the whole Sanhedrin to dust and make Caesar and every citizen of his empire bow the knee to me. The mob could be consumed like frost in the summer sun. But Peter, that's not why I came. I must go. See, Peter thought the kingdom would advance through war. He thought the kingdom would advance through flesh and blood, that it would have its power invested in politics. And Jesus tells him, no. Legions of angels would have been dispatched were that the case. The enemies of God would have fallen like Goliath or like the Jebusites or like Jericho or the Canaanites or the army of Sennacherib, but that's not what would save God's people. That's not what would save Peter or anyone else because God's kingdom doesn't come that way, nor is it advanced that way. It's not incidental that Jesus chooses 12 legions of angels or more. Right? Why not one legion of angels? Why not one angel in Second Kings? It was enough to uh, one angel to destroy an army of 180,000. Why 12 legions of angels? One for himself and one for each of the disciples who were there with him. 
He's telling Peter, Peter, if your defense and if your salvation and if your entrance into the kingdom of God, if your spiritual prosperity, all of it depended on making war with this crowd, if it depended on making Jesus king in Jerusalem, if that's where deliverance would be found, Jesus tells Peter he would have done it. He would have called down a legion for each of them and more. But their defense and their salvation and their prosperity in the kingdom of God is not going to come that way. And if they tried to get it that way, they would lose it. It will only come through the sacrifice of Christ dying for their sins. That is the only thing that will usher them into the heavenly kingdom. Peter thought the answer to the Christian mission was to fight off these lackeys and do battle. But Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. He's done everything necessary to save his people. If, if, saving his, if, if, if calling down legions of angels to fight the Roman Empire would have saved his people, that's what he would have done. But you remember, he prayed, is there any other way? There was no other way. The only way was for him to go willingly to the cross. That's the heart of the kingdom. That's what the kingdom is about. I can't help but think of the temptations we face in our own day. If only so-and-so were elected. If only this law were passed or that law repealed. If only this or that. And, and listen, those aren't bad things. It's not a bad thing when a godly leader is elected. It's not a bad thing when a good law is passed or a bad law is repealed. And, and I'm thankful for people who make it their life's work to do those things. I benefit greatly from them. We all do as Christians when godly leaders rule. And you can think of men in history or even men in the Bible like Daniel. So I don't want to disparage those things. But I do want you to understand that's not the mission of the church. And the church isn't going to advance that way. If it would, you could be sure and guaranteed God would advance it that way and bring it to pass. But what does Jesus say over and over? My kingdom is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom. It's in the midst of you. Notice something else here. It actually doesn't say Jesus could call down legions of angels. It says he could call on his Father who would send them. He has just been calling on his Father, hasn't he? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup depart from me. Not my will, but yours be done. And here he acknowledges that the Father will answer him no matter what he asks, even if it's sending angels down from heaven. And the implication here is that the reason why the cup will not pass for Christ is not because so much Christ has given up or given in, but he has determined willingly to drink it down. I mean, you have to understand, Jesus says, if I asked, the Father would send down legions of angels, and if the Father sends down legions of angels, guess what? No cross. Jesus says, if I were to ask my Father in heaven, the plan of redemption would be aborted. I wouldn't have to go through with it. It would be done. 
Unless Jesus was lying when he said that God, his Father, would send down legions of angels and he wasn't. You see here, he is taking the only path that will redeem his people. You see here, he is fully submitted to that plan. You see here the the willingness of Christ to go to the end. And, And you see his invincible determination to endure to the end. Because if he asked his father, his father would send legions of angels to disperse the crowd and destroy the Sanhedrin and get rid of the Romans. But he doesn't ask that way. Why? Because he has set himself to save his people. And the only way that will happen is by going to the cross and dying in their place. And so lastly, we see his courage facing the crowd and his willingness to go. They came against him like he was some bandit. Like he was the leader of a rebellion. That's, that's the picture here in the garden. Like they're coming to arrest some champion of an, an insurrection that wants to overthrow Rome. And yet he walked openly in their cities and never once did he threaten them with force. He didn't incite physical harm against them or even to the temple. He said one day it's coming down, but he forbid his followers from taking part in it. He didn't defy the governor Pilate. No, he commanded the crowds to do what the Pharisees told them to do, but just don't do what they do. He commanded his disciples to render to Caesar what belonged to Caesar. There was no hint of insurgency in Christ. He was a peaceful prophet commanding his disciples to be peacemakers. He was sitting in the temple every day with no threat to the political powers of the day besides taking the admiration of the crowds away from them. And though it filled the Sanhedrin with jealousy, it certainly was no crime. There was no need to arrest him like this. There was no need for a violent mob Had they come in the temple where Jesus was every day, Jesus again would have told his followers to stand down. That's what he told Peter, stand down. (laughs) He would have submitted himself to his enemies. And yet here they are, a mob, priests and guards and Levites and servants alike, all come to take captive a peaceful man offering no resistance. The disciples were not the only ones to misunderstand the mission of Christ. They expected resistance. When Peter drew his sword, they were ready for a fight, but the Lord wouldn't allow it. Nothing in his ministry hinted at this being his mission. His disciples were commanded against it. His kingdom is spiritual, not physical, and he didn't come to conquer his enemies, but to save them, to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. That's why he was sent. That's why he sends his disciples. You wonder how come sometimes the Lord doesn't pluck you out of this world the moment you believe? Jesus tells us why. He's got a job for you to do. To seek and to save the lost, just like he was sent to do. He's not going to allow anything to imperil this. And so he marches out of the garden, almost ironically, the victorious captive He might be the one who's bound, but he is the one who is in charge. Now, by addressing the crowd the way he does, he exposes their guilt and shames them. He does. Why have you come out here like this? Why have you come out here with swords and clubs as though I was the leader of some rebellion? You know that's not what I've been about. 
He's he's doing the same thing he did with Judas. I have no doubt that some in this crowd would later repent and find themselves numbered among his true disciples. It's very fitting for the work of Christ. If he would save a thief who mocked him, if he prayed that the Father would forgive those who were crucifying him, wouldn't it stand to reason that some of the men in this crowd would believe? If not at the cross, then in the thousands upon thousands who were converted in the first days of Peter's preaching. Many Roman soldiers, we're told, believed. John tells us of Peter's preaching they were cut to the heart. What would cut them more than to know they were there on the night of his betrayal? Many of the Levites believed. John tells us many of the priests believed. These are a people who Christ directly interceded for when he prayed the Father would forgive them. Certainly he should have some of them. And so he exposes their guilt, shaming them for fearing him. He shames them for being afraid of him. Why would you come like arms with this? Did you, did you honestly expect a battle? Didn't you know I am a peaceful man? Didn't you see me and hear me in the temple every day? Haven't I only done good all the days of my ministry? And yet you would treat me like a criminal. You know you don't need to come with such a force as this. And he shows them their guilt. Why? Because without a confession, without an acknowledgement of guilt and sin, there can be no salvation. This is a rebuke. It's another warning. And as Jesus warns them, even here, He is seeking the lost to save them. That they would see His kindness and their treachery and repent and believe. Now, He concludes by telling them what they're doing. They don't understand it. He does. They are fulfilling the foreordained plan of God spoken by the prophets and fulfilled on this night. God is in control. God is in command. God has decreed it and it cannot be undone. Apart from that decree, the captors could do nothing. They have no power over Christ. They are actors on the stage that God has set, living out the script that God has written. And now, as they seize the precious one, the disciples... They all run for their lives. No one would willingly go with him. Not one of his followers would risk crucifixion. These men, all of them, at this moment, they love their lives more than the Lord. When danger is upon them, though their friend and their master was in dire need, they ran away and fled, just like he told them they would. He must go and suffer and die alone. Because He alone is the only one who can save. He is the only one who can endure the wrath of God. He's the only one who is the perfect sacrifice and He's the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. There is salvation in Him and nowhere else. No one can go with Him because there will be no co-redeemer on that night. No one's going to suffer alongside Him for the salvation of His people. He alone is the way and the truth and the life, and no one will come to the Father except through Him. So He hands Himself over to be the willing and only sacrifice for the people of God. He dies alone for His people because there is no other way. In closing...
want to point out one last thing. Jesus was a willing sufferer. He was a willing sufferer. He didn't resist. He didn't revile. He didn't defend himself. For you to wipe your slate clean, to reconcile you with the Father, he endured the cross, the mockery, all of it. And if he was willing to suffer in this way, he will also be a willing Savior for those who come in faith to him. If he would suffer in such a way, then wouldn't he more willingly save those he came to suffer for? If I am, if I am laboring to do something for a child, for one of my sons, and I am working hard at it, and it's a, it's a trial, nothing like this, but I'm laboring to, for it to be accomplished, then doesn't it stand a reason that with the same intensity and desire that I, I want to do this thing for my son, I want him to enjoy it? I wouldn't begrudge him at all for coming and, and, and taking part and enjoying what's been purchased for him. Christ purchased His people with His blood. He will not in, and in no way turn away anyone who comes to Him. For as willing as he was to suffer, he is as willing to save. I don't know if any of you are struggling with that. How can Christ forgive a sinner like me? He suffered to forgive a sinner like you if you would come and put your trust in him. And I pray that you would this morning. Let's pray. Lord, you alone know the hearts of men. I don't and I don't pretend to. But you know where the emphasis needs to be and you know what they need to hear and you know who needs to be saved and you know who needs to be strengthened. And I pray, Lord, that you would use your word as a salve for your people, as conviction for some, as healing for others, and that you would accomplish the work that you have set out for it this morning, that your will would be done and that your word would not fall to the ground void without accomplishing that for which it was sent to accomplish. I pray that your people would be strengthened, that lost sheep would be brought in, and that your Son, who is worthy of all admiration and praise and worship, would be glorified from now and until forever, as he will be. And it's in his name we pray and give thanks. Amen.